ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. This is The Conversation Hour on ABC Radio Melbourne and Victoria. What's your idea of a good holiday? Is it lying on a beach with a book and a cocktail, getting it away from it all and heading bush, exploring a new city and a new culture? What about risking life and limb to conquer the tallest mountain or battling frostbite in the icy wastes or even for a mere million-odd dollars flying close to space for 90 minutes strapped to the back of an enormous rocket? These are examples of frontier tourism, basically travel for people who are already just a little bit bored by a standard adventure trip. Once a kayaking journey around the Rocky Mountains, I guess, loses excitement, you might start thinking, what's next? I'm Nick Healy with you this week, filling in for Rochelle, and today I want to know why, despite all the very clear risks, despite all the well-reported issues, why is frontier tourism booming? Now, for the past couple of weeks, the media has been filled with images and talk about the Titan submersible, five lives lost on a deep-sea tour of the wreck of the Titanic. Each year, 10 or even more people die trying to climb Everest. And if you look at your social media trends, maybe the Antarctic is poised to be the next really big thing. So who is paying for these trips? Who's heading out? What's the appeal? And why do some people want to put their lives on the line for a holiday? Now, what do you think? Should people be able to take these risks if they want? Should the whole world be open to anyone who can afford to pay? Or do we maybe need better international legislation to keep people safe from their own desires? And I've got to say, if you have indulged in a little bit of adventure travel, I would love to hear from you. Tell me what it's all about. On ABC Radio Melbourne and Victoria. This is the Conversation Hour. Now, full confession, my idea of a great holiday is anywhere I can find a huge amount of local food to eat. My adventurous nature extends to dining and not much past that. So I was genuinely surprised to see what a big deal frontier tourism actually was. Now, Anne Hardy is the Associate Professor of Tourism and Society at the University of Tasmania. And just to set the scene a little, thinking of more general adventure tourism, I mean, this is a huge industry, right? Yes, it is a huge industry. It's said it's worth up to billions of dollars, in fact, and that's probably largely because tourists are prepared to pay very large amounts of money to engage in this activity. So in terms of that, how big a slice of the pie is this so-called frontier tourism? I mean, I would have thought not much in terms of tourist numbers, but given the dollar amount I'm hearing about some people spending, maybe a fair amount of cash. I think that's right, and it's really difficult to actually quantify to understand exactly what it's worth. But what we know is that as people travel more and more and um, as the, the pool of large you know, multimillionaires and billionaires increases around the world, these people have more and more money to spend and they've also engaged in many different types of tourism activities already so we know that once someone starts to engage in a lot of tourism activities they start to look for more and that's pretty much what the genesis of frontier and extreme tourism is it's tourists who want to engage in activities where they're the first 
or whether they're doing a particularly risky activity or um, whether they're actually going to be out there and sort of pushing the boundaries and, and learning new things. So it's all about pushing the boundaries of travel in this form of tourism. And chicken or egg? I mean, do, do the companies take these people out because they want to be taken out or do people want to be taken out because someone's willing to do it? Well, I think it's probably a combination of both, actually. I mean, when you look at um, the Virgin um, Galactic, you know, they they will be... There are people who have been on the waiting list for many years to actually do this. So people want to do it. And at the same time, the companies are formed to cater to that demand. So I think there is this this growing demand um, for, you know, really uh, extreme types of tourism that, that pushes the boundaries. And there's a variety of reasons why people do that. But a lot of it essentially comes back to two things. And one is usually around ego and recognition. And the second is some people want to engage in this form of tourism to actually push the boundaries of knowledge. So it might be they want to go and learn something new and discover something new as well. Is that not the the role of, I guess, trained scientists to be doing that instead, though, rather than tourists? <laughs> yeah, well, I think the interesting thing about tourism, for a variety of different reasons, and one of them is social licence, like getting cred for the activities that it's actually offering, um, is that in recent years what we've seen is tourism activities have started to uh, have a science and an education component. And it's it, there's, you know... The, People would say the reason why um, often tourism experiences and um, trips offer the ability to collect science is so that people can learn. Uh, and the other reason is that people want to learn. So often tourists who go to places, they want to be able to be part of the solution or um, understand why a particular place is so special. And sometimes tourism forms a very important role in terms of supporting scientists or social scientists to go to these particularly remote regions regions to understand phenomena. So they might actually carry a scientist on board who will be Mm. actually conducting experiments while the tourists are having their wonderful experience and maybe even, you know, holding some instruments and being, being part of that science project. And the companies who are running some of these things, I mean, we've got to acknowledge that they don't always go well. We've seen some very high-profile examples of that quite recently. There's got to be a huge amount of liability here. I mean, if I was a company, I'd be wondering if this was actually going to make financial sense. Well, I think there probably is. And, you know, for all the high-profile ones that that go wrong, there's a lot of successful, Mm. you know, things around there. So companies have insurance policies themselves that insure them and tourists also have insurance that um, will insure themselves as individuals. And I'm not really sure of the specifics of, you know, something like the Titan and how whether insurance can actually be sought for that type of activity but I think you know the important thing to remember is that many of the tourists who engage in this activity are fully aware of the risk and that that is part of the thrill you know when you engage in a really risky activity your brain sends out you know fear signals and then a massive amount of signals if things go right and so the, the risk and that kind of life and death living on the precipice 
for really extreme forms of tourism, that's actually part of part of the attraction. I, and I get that uh, on some limited way. I'm not an adventurous person myself, but I do get that slight buzz from the risk. But, you know, as someone's pointed out here, if you're an adventure traveller, you should be liable to pay any publicly funded search and rescue missions. Like you might say, I'm aware of the risks, but there's still a commitment to go and get you when something gets wrong. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And um, there's a movie that's come out recently uh, by a, a Nepalese Sherpa called 14 Peaks. And what that movie was really about was trying to raise recognition of the role that, um, in his, their instance, Sherpas play um, in getting people up to places like Mount Everest. And so often what we find is that the rescuers or the Sherpas the guides and the support crew, they don't actually get the recognition for the work that they do. And there, there is actually quite a strong movement at the moment to try and change that because there is a, there's, a, there's often a public cost involved when we have a rescue effort and there's also a social cost. And, you know, that's when people are involved in rescue efforts. They may be left with trauma. They may die in the process of making the rescue. And then that carries on to family and community and that type of thing. So it's a, it's a multi-layered problem when we have to, you know, when these big rescue efforts um, have to take place. And have you actually been out to any of these places? Like, have you been to the Antarctica or anywhere that's kind of coming up as one of the mm -hmm. hot spots right now? Yeah, I have. Uh -oh. um, I've engaged in a, a fair amount of um, activities throughout my life, but my re <laughs> most recently, not in the Titan and not in that type of stuff in Everest, um, but most recently I was down in Antarctic tourism, um, Antarctica on a, on a uh, passenger vessel and with a company that went down there. Strictly speaking, we wouldn't really regard that as sort of frontier or extreme tourism anymore. It's actually become so popular there were 100,000 people down there last summer so it's really kind of flipping into the kind of uh, perhaps even you know edging around the mass tourism um, and we define that really by looking at the environment and the impact and you know the communities and that type of thing and who are affected what's mass tourism in one place may not be mass in another but yes I was down there and you know, you can really see that uh, there are many people around with large amounts of disposable income <laughs> who want to go down and see this place. They want to learn um, and sometimes they want to fulfil bucket lists. Sometimes they want to understand climate change and sometimes they're just there with, with family and friends and following in the footsteps of adventurers. There, there are many reasons why people go to really remote places like this. Anne Hardy, thank you so much for talking this morning. Anne's the Associate Professor of Tourism and Society at the University of Tasmania. Mike's texted in saying, Nick, you've obviously never gone beyond the end of trams in Melbourne. Celebrate the adventurous spirit. Mike, I appreciate it. I'm not actually Melbourneian, but um, look, I, I, I do love to travel. I just love to travel to cities where I get to eat. And uh, Susan texted in saying, as long as extreme tourists are prepared to fund any expenses incurred in their rescue should they get into difficulties. You're not alone with that, Susan. A few people have been texting in to suggest that one of their big concerns is when we see those maybe even international rescue missions coming through the expense, should that be something or should you be able to take on the responsibility 
study on the risk factors if this is what you want to do. Now, I mentioned the Antarctic just before. Uh, obviously, that was once a domain of just explorers and scientists. But right now, you can go into social media. You can see videos on TikTok, on Instagram, of people crossing Drake Passage. Now, Dr Hannah Nielsen, also with the University of Tasmania, Senior Lecturer in Antarctic Law and Governance. Hannah, I was just genuinely quite stunned to discover that you can take a tourism trip to the Antarctic. I, I honestly thought the complexities of international bases and what have you would have made it nearly impossible. Yes, well, Antarctica is a lot more accessible now than it was 60 or 100 years ago. And the Antarctic Treaty sets that place aside for peace and science. There is a lot of scientific activity, uh, but tourism is, of course, a peaceful activity. And it is the main way that humans interact with that place today. We're getting a sense of how many people are going through. Uh, yeah, so in the last season, just been, it's a summer season, we had just over 100,000 visitors to the Antarctic and that has been rising. Um, there was a pause with the COVID pandemic that interrupted travel. Um, but we've seen a number of new ships coming online and there is, of course, a lot of demand for Antarctica as a product as well, as we see in those numbers. Not to sound ridiculous, but what are people doing while they're there? I mean, I saw a YouTube video recently of someone climbing a mountain and putting a branded flag on top of it. But what are average people who are taking these tourism trips out to somewhere quite formidable? What are they doing? Yeah, I guess there's a number of reasons that people might want to go. Uh, you do have a few examples where people might go inland to do something very extreme like skiing to the South Pole or climbing a mountain for the first time. So there are opportunities to gain those first. But in general, what people would do is visit the Antarctic Peninsula region, which is quite close to South America, and they would be based on a vessel. Uh, so they'd be making some landings, seeing some penguins, uh, other wildlife like whales, we have also seen in recent years, though, a proliferation of activity, so not just looking at that landscape, um, but more offerings like paddle boarding in the Antarctic or, in fact, submersibles as well to see what's uh, underneath the, the ice underneath the water in the Antarctic. So we've seen diversification in, in the sites that are visited and in the sorts of activities that are being offered as well. Hannah, you mentioned the mountain climbing. Is there a complexity to knowing where you can be and can't be in the Antarctica? Um, so it sort of just depends on where you can get access to. You'd be supported by uh, one of the tour operators, even if you're going on a sort of very much self-sufficient expedition. Um, if you want to go to the Antarctic, though, what you would need to do is get permits for those activities. So applying to one of the competent authorities, like if you're an Australian-based company, that would be Australia. And you need to show what's the environmental impact of what you're doing. So for tourism, that should have less than a minor or transitory impact on the environment. Right. And is that, I guess, adhered to? I mean, is there pretty strict rulings around that impact on, on, on that continent? Uh, yeah. So that's sort of through the Antarctic Treaty system. Uh -huh. And um, so, yes, it is quite strict rules. And if a country like Australia is a party to the Antarctic Treaty system, um, then they also have rules domestically that say, you know, if you're Australian, you've, you've got to um, act in certain ways. And if you don't, there can be penalties that come through Australian law uh, as well. Hannah Nielsen, thanks so much. Hannah's a senior lecturer in Antarctic law and governance at the University of Tasmania. Matt on the text line saying, Nick, this is 100% elitism.
being better than everyone else, being able to do something that the common pleb doesn't get to do. It's about status. And Matt's saying if people want to do it, great, so long as they're aware of the risks and that society won't stop and grind to a halt if something that does happen to them. Is it the role of a tourist to be the first person to climb a mountain in the Antarctica? I would absolutely love to hear from you this morning. This is The Conversation Hour on ABC Radio Melbourne and Victoria. Nick Healy here, filling in for Rochelle all this week. Virgin Galactic currently being, uh, I think, praised quite a lot for acing its first ever commercial mission over the weekend, sending four passengers into suborbital space and bringing them back. Now, Dr Brad Tucker is an astrophysicist and a cosmologist with ANU. Brad, is this the start of genuine space tourism as a frontier tourism? So, yeah, you know, space tourism has actually been around for about 20 years, uh, believe it or not, um, when some private people paid the Russians for a seat. Um, They paid them about $20 million at that time. But it it wasn't regular. It was kind of just a few odd cases. And, And then Virgin Galactic in 2004 was kind of that first vision to say, yeah, we want to make it regular, uh, commercialized and more accessible. And so we, we've seen this race play out with Blue Origin and Virgin Galactic in particular. Mm. Um, and, and now that, as he said, they had that first commercial flight. I think it will be. But the reality is they're actually desperate to fly because they've had like 300 people who have paid for tickets already. So they have a backlog of customers they need to get through uh, before they even really start thinking about flying new customers, so to speak. 20 years, as you pointed out, but previously uh, you had to pay a government, you had to pay a country to be able to go and do this. It's weird to think of this as a commercial enterprise to me. Like it's still, I don't know, you know, it's still one of those bizarre little brain tricks for me that someone can spend nearly half a million bucks and grab a seat into, well, arguably space or at least low space or something close to space (laughs) space ish um (laughs) space light as we say um but that's right you're right that there's no government involved there's no transactions there's no government oversight in terms of who's going up and and why they're going up uh which is as you said very different from the few Mm. times that occurred in the past uh, and, and this is kind of what we're seeing in this way forward. And, and this is part of been just a broader change with space with the private sector and commercial sector um, really taking part in uh, space world. It's just now that private people can participate in that. And then I think in some ways when we talk about adventure tourism and, and, and different tourism and those sorts of things, it's a very different combination, I think, in space what we see because in some parts the technology is heavily regulated in oversight and in others with the customers it is a complete free-for-all. How free-for-all are we talking? Like, you know, like there's a sense that when you look at one of these flights, it resembles kind of, I don't know, a traditional plane enough that you might think, oh, it's the same as hopping on a plane. This is still an incredibly dangerous activity taking part in. It is, and Blue Origin uses a rocket that goes straight up and down. Um, and, you know, to be honest, right now it is up to uh, anyone to, what the company is, to decide who goes on it and the requirements, right? So with obviously space agencies, you go through a lot of um, training and those sorts of things um, and requirements and, and needs 
but they get to decide what the extension of that is. Like famously Blue Origin, your requirements are you just have to not go to the toilet for two hours, right? I mean, that that that, that kind of seems a little bit that. Think about it in this way, right? People and women who are pregnant, especially in late-term stages of the pregnancy, have to get like a doctor's note to go on an airplane. Yeah. That's not required to go on Virgin Galactic, right? You would need the doctor's note to fly to the spaceport, but nothing beyond that to get into space. That just doesn't seem right. Brad, will it stop being a free-for-all? Do you just see a future where it's going to become, you know, still very expensive, but at least common enough that we have to have some kind of collaboration on what's the right way to do it? So, yeah, I, I think so. And again, I think the technology has been collaborative, heavy oversight and regulation because you actually need a permit to launch, just as airplanes need permits from governments to land and take off. Same with a space plane, rocket, whatever you may take. So in the technology side, heavily regulated and controlled, but then the passenger side, it's not. And I think we will see that change at some point that it will essentially say, hey, we need a base standard of you know, safety protocols and checks or training or preparation. And this is only partially be- right now because we don't know a lot about how the human body changes in space. We know it does and we know it changes a lot, but we just don't know the full extent of what those impacts are. My famous example is uh, Richard or William Shatner went on uh, a Blue Origin flight as one of these space tourists. Oh, yeah. Google him, a photo of William Shatner in space. He looks like he's shattering himself, let's say. He does not look comfortable. He is going through physiological changes, and there's no way to say that is right or wrong. I think that is going to have to change. I don't know when. And, and I do hope it's sooner rather than later so that we can keep it as being a safe and adventurous thing because people want to make this a big commercial product, but with it needs to come a few changes. Brad, we were talking about Antarctica before yeah. and there was a sense that when tourists go there, they're in some way at least adding a little bit to uh, some of the understanding of the area. Is that true for flights like this? I mean, is this, as, as a researcher, as a scientist yourself, is this helping? So I think there there's two sides of the coin. I think some of the, the individual passengers, not really. They're just going up for fun. In the case of the Virgin Galactic flight, lastly, there were some Italian researchers who went up to actually test a new type of spacesuit or, or, or G-suit. Hmm. So they were conducting a bit of research. But for the most part, the people who go in, there is, I don't think, a huge benefit in terms of scientific discovery. Now, the other side of the coin, I would say, is because these billionaires have invested so much into efficient commercial operation, because previously, any time a rocket or something went up, it wasn't reusable. They focus on making everything reusable, which is great environmentally and also technology-wise, but it also means cost-wise – those costs have plummeted, which we have directly seen into meaning satellites having now dramatically cheaper access to space by about, you know, almost 20 times cheaper than what it used to be, which means the stuff that we send research and scientific into space has benefited from that development. So 
not directly, I think there's been a positive, but indirectly, I think there's been a huge positive. Dr. Brad Tucker, it is always great to catch up with you. Thanks for your time this morning. Brad's an astrophysicist and a cosmologist with ANU. Uh, someone texted in saying, what a juxtaposition. All of these people travelling to Antarctic, releasing all of those emissions just so they can see the ice melt caused by all of those emissions. Texter says, it seems a little bit crazy when you think about it. On the line, we've got Rooka from Clayton. Rooka, you think we need to be a bit more aware of the environment as well. When they're talking about ecotourism, this really makes me mad. Your earlier, your earlier um, um, uh, commentator um, t- talking about, uh, you know, getting people to the Antarctic, 100,000 100, people last week. What if we do? Um, ideally, if we're talking ecotourism, stay away from the bloody place. Uh, just... Um, it, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't need it, 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 Antarctica and 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 those those wilderness um, places don't need um, um, uh, tourists uh, stomping all around them. For goodness' sake! Yeah, Rooker, thanks for calling in. And, and I do note that you know when we were speaking to Hannah before, she did point out that to uh, go and do some of the major trips that you have to do around the Antarctic, you do have to file um, a report suggesting what that environmental impact will be. And, and Hannah was saying that it's actually quite fairly rigorously applied to, uh, given the international nature of the Antarctic. This is the Conversation Hour on ABC Radio Melbourne and Victoria. Nick Healy here, filling in this week for Rochelle. Adventure tourism, says one texter, is a symptom of advanced technology that facilitates travel and excessive monetary reach. If you couple those things with overpopulation, you have an explosion and consumption of the natural world at an unsustainable rate. Too much indulgence with too little judiciousness. Apologies for that. We've lost the plot. Do get in touch. It is 0437 774 774. Can we find a balance? Can we get a sense of celebrating adventure, understanding that we want to see these parts of the world, but not make it such a hugely environmental impact? Now, Ben Groundwater is one of Australia's uh, foremost travel writers. Ben, good morning to you. Hi, Nick. How are you doing? How much of the appeal when it comes to this sort of travel is just bragging rights? How, many, how much of it is people doing it for the gram, as I am assured young people say today? Yeah, look, this is a, such a really, you know, it's a really difficult question because people have always travelled. There's always been adventurers. There's always been people who've wanted to push the envelope and, and get out to places that nobody else has ever been to and do things that nobody else has done before. But obviously now we have a situation where not only are there just so many of us who are travelling at the moment, as, as you were saying, you know, there's such a huge population in the, in the world now and, and a lot more people who have the means to travel, but we also have social media, which means that there's a sort of drive, an even bigger drive now to go to places that people haven't been or do things that are considered interesting or weird or amazing because then you can put it on social media, on Instagram, on Facebook, on, on any of those platforms 
and kind of show other people or strangers or friends that you've done these things. And, and I think it's really hard to kind of separate the drivers and, and decide who's doing what for what reasons. I, it's very easy for people to sit back and say, oh, they're just doing it for bragging rights. But, you know, Ernest Shackleton was probably doing the same thing when he tried to walk across Antarctica. <laughs> <laughs> We've been doing amazing things for bragging rights for a long time. It's just now that there's so many of us who are doing it. Look, we have traditionally done that, and you're right, but, you know, we also brought back scientific knowledge with us, and I feel like, you know, we've lost a little element of that. Ben, stepping back, have you done adventure-style tourism? Have you gone out and and had these experiences? I think this is really interesting because I I think one person's adventure tourism is, is the next person's walk in the park in some ways. What people consider to be adventurous and, and envelope-pushing is, is for some other people, it's just a completely normal travel experience. You know, I've, I've done some things that I guess people would look at and think that's very adventurous. Uh, you know, some of the countries that I've been to and some of the styles of travel that I've done, I've, I've visited places like the Democratic Republic of Congo. Um, I had a, a holiday in Iran, which was incredible. Um, you know, I've been to Colombia. I've, I've done mountain trekking and skydiving and bungee jumping and all those kinds of things that that to me are really enjoyable and, and really fulfilling and, and really amazing. But, uh, but I guess to some other people might seem like it's, it's going a little bit far or, or it's a thing that I've just done for, yeah, as we were saying, you know, to put on social media and brag about it. And, and so, so, yeah, I, I guess I, w- I could say that I've done not the true frontier, not the places that nobody else has ever been, but certainly places that, that few people have been and, and that I find maybe interesting for that reason. Hey Ben, stay on the line because Robin's called in. Robin, you're on the road right now, but your travels have taken you to some pretty interesting places. Yeah, they have. Um, but it's been about 10 years ago now. Um, I took my grandson to Antarctica, but we went on a scientific exploration ship. And what they do is they sell off a few tickets on there to help pay the cost. So the ship's heading down to do all that, um, you know, count, counting the new chicks in the that, that are surviving down there, where the rookeries have moved, just doing all that research. Robin, what did you and your grandson do? Um, well, basically, as we were sailing, every almost every night, someone would give us a little talk. We'd go down under deck. And there'd be a room there with, you know, like a little um, movie theatre type thing. And a different scientist would speak each night telling us what we would be likely to see, where they were going, why they were going. Um, And if it was safe for birds, they would tell us all the migration habits of that bird and what to look for. And they'd go through all the the different birds and that. It was pure pure education and full-on. Um, combined with a bit of excitement. Um, when I went, I just, I guess I just saw it as educational. Um, and I have an education background. Uh, but, it sounds yeah. like you got quite a lot out of it, Robin. Like, it sounds like it was a genuine experience. Oh, definitely. Um, and we had a little bit, well, I had never thought but never even considered any point of danger because these scientists are doing these trips. They've been doing it for God knows how many years. 
like one of the ladies on board, um, she was telling us she was the first lady to ski across the South Pole, um, and she was doing a lecture. But when we went to look at some rookeries, when we were coming back, the icebergs were moving. Wow. And we actually got caught out, and we got caught between them and had a lot of trouble getting out. Um, I didn't feel scared for some reason. I just thought, wow, imagine if you'd been down here in those wooden boats. You'd have no hope in hell, whereas we were in a Zodiac. There are another three or four Zodiacs. They all had radio contact, contact with us. Um, and what happened to start with our... I had a lovely... I think she was French lady, and she was trying to keep everyone very calm, you know. Oh, we're just caught up here for a moment. We'll just try another way. But you could kind of hear panic in the other voices coming from the other Zodiacs. Wow. So we've lost contact. We've lost contact. We can't see you. <laughs> Robin, I mean, the perspective that gave you on what people would have been doing, as you said, in those wooden boats in the 1800s, Ben, Robin's talking about going out there as part of one of those scientific expeditions. And I guess that's been something I've been trying to work through in my own head, what's so different to me. And I, I do think we've hit that tipping point where instead of people having to, you know, help fund a scientific expedition, going out with scientists, you know, watching them work to do these, I guess, you know, investigations of an area like the Antarctic, like up Everest, wherever they are, it's now commercial tourism companies that seem to be doing the bulk of this. And that, that feels like a really seismic shift to me. Uh, yeah, look, I, I suppose it is. I, I, think, I, I think it's really, I think there's an educational aspect, even to those commercial um, ones. I, I went on a cruise to Antarctica probably about 10 years ago or so now on a fairly budget um, cruise. And, and certainly, you know, there's geologists on board, there's biologists, there's... Huh. You're always kind of learning things when you're there. You go down to lectures on the way, on the Drake Passage to get down to Antarctica. It takes quite a while, and there's a fair bit of time just sitting on board. And so you're sort of learning about what you're going to see. You're learning about the issues that are happening in Antarctica at the moment. And I think for this style of travel, there's kind of an argument to be made that, you know, you care a lot more. I think humans care a lot more about a place and its issues when they've actually seen it with their own eyes, when they've when they've experienced it and, and understood it a lot more. And so maybe people leave that place with a lot healthier sense of the issues that are that Antarctica is facing. And and you know, obviously you can say, well, yeah, they're contributing to it by going there. But I'm not sure that the sort of limited number of cruisers at the moment that are actually visiting the continent are having anywhere near as much damage as the rest of the world's actions in, you know, burning carbon emissions wow. and, and, and all this sort of stuff are, that, that is really contributing to, to melting ice caps, which is the real problem rather than some cruise ships going in and dropping some people off to take photos of penguins. It, it's an interesting point. Ben, uh, Vaughn's actually texted in saying, Nick and Ben, I'd love to know how many people come back from these trips and become more environmentally aware. Uh, I've come back from things like this and understood so much more about my impact so maybe there is a benefit to this do we think ben groundwater i think there is but then of course you know you have the argument of, of where's the line how many people are we allowing to go down and, huh. and have these educational experiences because obviously there's there's a point where it's going to become really problematic and maybe we've already crossed that line now i'm not, I'm not exactly sure but that's the problem with modern travel really is that there's just so many of us with the ability to do it and and everyone's kind of grappling with with how you stop so many people from going to a certain place without just pricing it out 
and making it just an experience for the richest of the rich. You know, how do you do this in an egalitarian way? And I'm not sure that anyone's really come up with a good solution for that yet. Ben, you mentioned places you've been to, like Democratic Republic of Congo. Someone did text in very early on saying Kiev, Kiev will be the next big tourism venue for these, you know, uh, frontier tourists. Because, I mean... When we talk about war zone tourism, which we've barely touched on, there was that famous book, The World's Most Dangerous Places, a tourism book that I think ended up with five reprints all about how to go to places that were incredibly unhealthy for you. Right. I mean, look, in some ways, you know, obviously there is a certain subset of tourists who love a challenge and who love to go to a place that's formally looked at as dangerous. But at the same time, this is a great way of injecting money into a, a country and a place that has obviously been through some terrible things. I, I think, you know, if the, the, the Dead Kennedys had that song Holiday in Cambodia, which was which was sarcastic at the time, but now, you know, a holiday in Cambodia is, is seen as a great thing um, and, and that a lot of Australians have done. So I think, I think Kiev actually Kiev will be a popular tourism destination in the future. I'm not sure how far in the future, but I think it's a place that people will certainly want to go to and there'll be an influx of kind of, of the hardier, more risk-taking travellers who go in there first and then everybody else will arrive after a while as well. And and I hope, you know, it's an enjoyable experience and a positive one for Ukraine. Well, that's what we want, that positivity. Ben Groundwater, thank you so much. Ben's a travel writer. You can catch his work in The Age and The SMH. Lots of people saying, well, who cleans up? Cass saying, who cleans up after the adventure tourists? Who, you know, when you see all that rubbish and filth that's left at Everest base camps, who gains from all of this? Why do we need to conquer places just because they are there? And I was asking at the start, who goes and does something like this? Well, the answer to that is Brigitte Muir. In 1997, she became the first Aussie woman to climb to the top of Everest and the first Australian, male or female, to climb what's called the Seven Summits, the highest summit on each of the continents. Brigitte, good morning. Good morning, Nick. What drove you? Why? Why were you boiling to go and do this? Well, I've been climbing for a very long time, probably about 20 years by the time I got to looking at Everest. And the reason I wanted to climb it was that I wanted a long-term goal. And in 1984, I'd met at Everest Base Camp an American called Dick Bath, who was in the process of climbing the highest peak on each continent. And I thought, oh, well, I'm going to do that. That sounds like fun. <laughs> and was it? Was it fun? Was it? Well, I wanted a long-term goal, and golly, did I get my long-term goal. It took me nine years to do it and four attempts at Mount Everest. But, um, yeah, I guess it's a bit different because that was my life. That's what I was Mm. doing. I was climbing mountains all the time because I loved it. Now, if, if you're a tourist going and trying out a few different things, I think it's it's a completely different point of view. Well, this is an important thing to, to point out. In 1997, climbing Everest was a very, very different undertaking than the people doing it today. Well, there were certainly a lot less people around, mm. and it was um, not as well organised uh, as it is today. I heard that uh, from people who actually guide on Everest, that Everest has got the highest uh, summit success of any mountains in the world. And that is because you can get the weather forecast for just about anywhere on the mountain at any time. So now it has become, I don't want to call it commonplace, but not quite the, I I guess, tribulation that it was for you. Probably not, no. And I certainly didn't have to send in a queue anywhere on the way up or down. (laughs) 
<laughs> which to me kind of defeats the purpose, you know. I think that's the the beauty and the joy of going to places where not many people go, whether you pay for it yourself mm. or you get sponsorship or somehow you get a way to get there. I mean, you can do that in Australia too. All you have to do is drive to somewhere and start walking in the desert. <laughs> so that's that's affordable. But what I was going to say is that when, yeah, you can do that. Well, maybe not you. <laughs> no, not me, but thank you, Brigitte. I appreciate that. <laughs> Um, I would add to that that it's really, really helpful if you're prepared, if you do your research, and if you've got experience, one step at a time, you know? When you but, see those images of, as someone was pointing out on the text line, uh, the rubbish and the human detritus that's left at some of the Everest base camps, what, what's your feeling from that? I don't know how much rubbish is there, but... To me, it doesn't really matter. I think because it's it's a sterile environment, so what's going to happen to it? I mean, you know, the worst thing about being on Everest, and that was in the 90s, was the poo, because there was poo everywhere. So, you know, forget about oxygen cylinders. You're not going to get sick from that. <laughs> but, you know, it, human, well, human faces. Yes, yes. I remember going for a walk around the base camp when we were stuck there because the weather wasn't good and there were poos everywhere. Now, we had been told to go to the toilet in barrels, which were taken down valley, but apparently that wasn't to the taste of everyone. And so you can imagine, you know, what you're faced with. (laughs) Does that not bother you? I mean, just the idea that now this is a more commonplace thing. Should we not have some areas that deserve to be preserved and I guess I guess recognised? It feels like a, a bit of a, a slap in the face to Everest for tourists to be able to just walk around leaving that. Um, yeah, well, see, Everest has got the problem that it's the highest mountain on the planet. And when you're a country which doesn't have, you know, many ways to make money, that's something that is very sellable. So you're not going to see, I think, any strong regulations about what's happening on Everest. Mm. I mean, you know, there are already regulations in place as far as rubbish and uh, human waste goes, but... There's so much, so much money coming from it to organisation, to local people, uh, to everybody in Nepal, really, but mostly government. <laughs> They've got very deep pockets. <laughs> so you're not surprised, I guess, to see this proliferation of this so-called frontier tourism, the fact that it is booming where people want to get away from just boring old adventure tourism. This doesn't shock you at all. Hey, if someone told me you can go on a flight to the outer, you know, reaches of the atmosphere and look down on planet Earth, hell yeah, I'd go. (laughs) In a heartbeat, by the sounds of it. Yeah, well, I'd do my research first, you know. (laughs) And that's coming back to something we were talking about quite a bit before is how much personal responsibility is there? I mean, heaven forfend, if a Virgin Galactic flight ended up having a a problem with re-entry and going down, we would marshal forces internationally to go on a rescue mission. And yet these are people who have paid knowing the full risk. You know, a lot of people were saying they should be paying back every cent that is ever spent on a rescue. What do you think, Brigitte? I think it makes sense, but that's also why you have travel insurance. I mean, I don't know what the situation is with intergalactic flights, but <laughs> <laughs> certainly um, it, it happens at different levels too. What, what if someone, you know, 
goes and gets lost in the Grampians, the national park near here. There's got to be a rescue, and are they going to pay for it? I don't think so. So it's it's all the same. It's just a question of scale. Brigitte Muir, thank you so much for having a chat and um, your personal insights about Everest. A little distasteful what you were telling me, but very, very fascinating. I really appreciate it. Dr. Brad Clark, Senior Research Fellow at the University of Canberra. Brad, that human drive to test ourselves, to push ourselves forward, to, uh, I guess, get to the uh, end of whatever human endurance we might have thought we had, it seems to be what's behind so much of this frontier tourism. Is it an innate urge? Oh, yeah, I guess for some people it's certainly an innate urge just to find the limits of their um, own personal capabilities and, and what they can achieve um, here on Earth. Have you worked with people who have done this sort of stuff? Uh, not to that level of extre- ex- extremity, but certainly with people that have tackled some of uh, Australia's more um, extreme environments or more challenging um, long-distance treks. So we have you know treks in Western Australia, for example. The, the Bibblemon track is about 1,000 kilometres um, and people that undertake that track are fully self-supported, have to carry all their own food and all their own supplies. And, and obviously that comes with um, the risks of exposure to the Australian environment and other, other challenges of the extreme fatigue, um, making sure you can carry enough food to support yourself for the six to seven weeks that you're out there. I mean, that sounds incredible to me, and I guess maybe even a little bit more interesting to me than going up Everest or, or off to the Antarctic or, or anywhere like that. I think I get a little excited about the idea that what you're actually pushing is not the level of human understanding, but human, I guess, capabilities. Yeah, that's certainly certainly my, my area of interest is the, the human capability and you know what we can push ourselves to physically and, um, and what we can achieve. Um, when we when we really focus and and chase a goal, and what kind of limits us in terms of the physiology, the environment, what what kind of stops us from achieving some of these goals? Yeah, Brad, when we talk Everest, obviously, you know, the early days of the explorers, this was the limit of human endeavour. They were working incredibly hard in in situations they didn't understand. We have a lot more knowledge now, and I get the sense that thanks to all the base camps, thanks to the infrastructure that's there for the tourists, it's actually a little easier to acclimatise your way up. Yes, I, certainly that's the kind of the messages that you hear from the, the reports from Everest Treks in the last few years, just the, the the support that's available from the Sherpa and then the support that's available from things like supplemental oxygen cylinder, cylinders and the rate at which they supply oxygen on their way up um, is certainly far and away um, more extreme than what was available, for instance, when Brigitte did it back in the 90s. Um, and the way that they do it these days... Uh, is you know trying to place a little bit less risk at the foot of the Sherpa and using helicopters and things like that more frequently than what they have in the past. Now, I heard a bit about this sort of ultra-marathon event in the Sahara. Can you tell me a little bit about it? Yeah, so that's the Marathon de Sable. It's a, it's a five, it has been a six- to seven-day event, but next year will be a five-day event. And in that in that race, it's still a race, not necessarily a trek or a challenge, but... People do do it to win and to race themselves and each other. Um, it's kind of three stages of 28 to 39 kilometres of running. Then they have one stage of 75 to 85 kilometres of running, then a final stage that's at the marathon distance of 42.2 kilometres, all through the Moroccan Sahara. 
And the really extreme thing about this um, event is that the participants and the runners have to be fully self-sufficient, except for their water. So they have to carry all their sleeping supplies um, and all their food for the duration that they're out in the desert. What's Uh, the psychology behind that? Who does something like that, Brad? I guess people that are, you know, um, regular runners, people that do ultra marathons. Ultra marathons becoming more and more popular all around the world. And here in Australia, we have a lot of ultra marathon events. And then that's the really extreme example of what you can do when you when you want to race at that sort of level. Um, yeah, racing through the Sahara deserts not not for everyone, obviously, and certainly not for me. But um, I guess if you if that's what interests you and that's what challenges you, then that's the the extreme example. I wouldn't even know where to begin with that, but it's kind of an interesting adjunct to the idea that we used to think that people who had large amounts of money were going to be naturally a little bit more inclined to live in the lap of luxury. It feels like it's those people who want to push themselves more and more these days. Yeah, certainly. I mean, in that example, like, uh, you know, people pay hundreds of thousands of dollars sometimes to go to the top of Mount Everest these days, whereas... To do that event in the in the in the Sahara is roughly four thousand euros entry fee, and um, quite a bit of that goes to some kind of charity. Um, so I guess it's not just the the rich and famous that want to do that sort of event. It's you know people from everyday life that you know obviously enjoy running but also want to challenge themselves one of the comments that's been coming through over and over today is that if you are wanting to do these styles of frontier tourism you have to be prepared both in terms of research but i imagine from your perspective in making sure that you are fit enough that it's not going to be you that creates the problem and and requires a team of sherpas for example to drag you back down at their own risk yes certainly like you you certainly have to be fit enough um but in a lot, a lot of cases, it's not. You don't have to be extremely fit. You don't have to be as fit as our best endurance athletes, for example. But I think to echo what Brigitte said earlier, you have to be experienced. You have to understand what you're going to get yourself into. Um, and then, a lot of the challenges of these kinds of frontier tourism or you know ultra endurance events come not necessarily from the fitness side, but more so the exposure that you get to the extreme environments that we have on Earth, whether that be high altitude or extreme heat in the Sahara Desert, then, you know, the challenge of trying to um, carry enough food and water to meet the energy and water demands for whatever you're trying to do, then dealing with just the extreme fatigue and the lack of sleep that that often accompanies these events. Can you be prepared for that? I think to a certain extent you can be. You obviously have to be generally fit, you have to, you know, train for months and months before you're ready to do that. And then I don't think you can ever know if you're going to be 100% ready until you do it yourself. Right. So, but you, I mean, I even love that idea. You mentioned the fatigue before. I mean, you can't really train to be exhausted, can you? <laughs> oh, it just, I guess it depends on, on how, how far you can push yourself in training, but I don't think you can ever train yourself to be as exhausted as, ex, ex, excuse me, as exhausted as you would be you know, having spent 20 hours trying to get to the summit of Everest and then coming back down to to the high base camps, for example, or having, you know, run 85 kilometres through the Saharan Desert after already having run for several days for 40 kilometres through the Saharan Desert. Oh, yeah, I don't think you can really ever train to be that exhausted. Dr Brad Clark, thank you so much. Brad's a senior research fellow at the University of Canberra talking about the way we prepare ourselves for some of these extreme moments. There does seem to be a real sense that we need to make sure we are fully aware of everything we're doing. And I, I do worry a little bit that when tourism becomes a little bit more commonplace and easier, maybe we think it's not our job to 
to be fully prepared. Uh, Elizabeth's in Preston. Elizabeth, good morning. Good morning. Um, look, I'd just like to say, um, now that we've got such wonderful films made by the like of David Attenborough and others, mm. why do we have to go and ruin an, a, a, an environment for our egos? Why, why can't we watch that and marvel at that? And you'll get to see places and things that you probably would not get on your trip. So just leave it as sort of, you know, spectate, watch the movie, indulge in the virtual reality if we ever get that to being made, but leave the actual trips to the experts. Elizabeth, thank you so very much. That is all from me today, obviously. I will be back with you tomorrow. And look, after all the dramas around Taylor Swift tickets last week, how broken are digital ticketing services? See you then.